Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Soul Sessions podcast. Today, my guest is Kyla Holly. Kyla is a psychotherapist and master practitioner in evidence-based treatments for sufferers of anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, orthorexia, and OSFED. She is also a bariatric specialist and practices an anti-diet approach for people with weight concerns. After training with the National Centre of Eating Disorders in the UK, she founded the Australian Centre for Eating Disorders and developed a number of training courses in eating disorders and weight concerns for health professionals in Australia and New Zealand. Kyla is also one of the one of only two people in Australia trained to use the 4Rs treatment protocol for ARFIN. Developed by Felix Economarchus, she migrated to Australia from the UK 22 years ago and currently lives and works in Coffs Harbour. Welcome, Kyla. Welcome. Hello, Jody. <laughs> it's so good to have you on the show. So just a little bit of background. I actually did your training a few years ago. And so we had a, a great couple of weeks training. And yeah. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Fantastic. So am I. I yeah. I come up with some interesting things for people to ponder. I know we definitely will. <laughs> so would you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself and your own history with disordered eating and body image concerns, if that's applicable, and what led you to working in the eating disorder field and then, I guess, founding ACFED? Okay. Well, my own history, it's kind of funny, I think, because in the early days of me doing the ACFED training for health professionals, I was often asked if I had had an eating disorder in the past. And I always said no, but it got to probably only about three years ago. And this sounds crazy, but it, it really hit me one day that Obviously, I did have an eating disorder in my past. And the reason I'd always said no, I think, was because firstly, I never sought help for it. I never had an official diagnosis. So it's just something that I kind of didn't recognize on a personal level. Mm. But looking back now at what I went through, I clearly had binge eating disorder for a couple of decades, I would say, between about the ages of, say, 18 and coming up to 40. Wow. Um, so it was a strange realisation years later to realise that had I been one of my own clients, I absolutely would have seen those sort of behaviours in me mm. and would have clearly defined it as binge eating disorder. It's interesting before we started and we talked about, you know, if we, if we end up getting off track and I can feel that that's going to happen already. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, let's go there. Let's do it. <laughs> you know, this is something that's really, really important because I think a lot of people who go to the doctor or they end up at a weight loss centre or wherever, often they are not diagnosed or they're not asked about their eating they're just kind of told especially if you're in a thin body because no one asks questions about people in thin bodies unless they're super super thin but if yeah. for example someone's in a in a larger body they're often just told to lose weight or to go on a diet and, and, and rarely are they ever asked about any kind of eating behaviors with that Absolutely. and and it makes it so easy for eating issues to get missed by just focusing on that, I think. So I'm not sure if that is part of sort of what happened to you, but it's certainly, that's what it brings to mind for me anyway. So Absolutely. I was the person in the bigger body for, for all that time. And I did what most people do. I, I went on countless diets, you know, it, believing each one would be different and would work for me, all the time becoming bigger and bigger, which we know is what happens with that sort of perpetual dieting yeah and all the time being led to believe it was my fault yes that if I just had more willpower if I could just do this if I could just do that and that the blame lied with me and I, I basically mm. felt worse and worse about myself never once was I 
asked about my eating as such. It was purely, you need to eat less and exercise more. That is the solution to your problems. Yeah. Of course it isn't. We know that, but I I didn't for for many decades. Well, it's important that you're talking about it because we know that, but maybe our listeners are only hearing that for the first time and thinking, oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. What led you into sort of psychology, eating disorder, ending up in the UK doing that training? Well, I started off basically doing, um, in the early days, doing a diploma of counselling. At that stage, I knew that I needed work. That sounds awful, but I did. I knew I had a lot to sort out in my own life. Mm. And I used myself during that training as a bit of a one-person case study. And, <laughs> like, um, we, like we all do. <laughs> absolutely. So everything I learned about counselling and psychology, I applied to myself and I found it was an absolute revelation. And even if mm. I had not gone on to do that as a career, learning what I did about myself during that period was so valuable. So in the process of doing this, I learned more about me. I managed to stop binge eating and came into recovery, for want of a better word, although I didn't recognize it at the time. Then I met up with a wonderful surgeon who I still work with. And the way we met is he took my gallbladder out. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Which, um, wow. It's not a very romantic way to meet someone, but he's become a really good <laughs> friend. He took my gallbladder out and I discovered as well that he was a bariatric surgeon. So I figured that as I just passed my diploma, a way possibly to get some work was to approach him and say, mm. I'd like to help and support your patients that are going through bariatric surgery. Wow. Because it's much more than the surgery. There's, you know, a lot of psychological issues that perhaps have to be addressed. Sure. There's behavioral issues that people might want to change. There's all mm. sorts of other things apart from the actual medical side of things. So I started working with him and very quickly picked up through some of the patients what I believed were eating disorders. Now, by this time, I was actually doing a degree. So I got the diploma, I was upgrading to a degree. Mm. And so I had learned a little bit about eating disorders, but not very much because it's really not covered in most of the professional health degrees that that people embark on. That's right. So I went looking for further training in Australia and found that really we were quite underprovided for in sort of a comprehensive treatment response that involved not only the understanding of eating disorders, but actually led us into what to do with people, you know, some sort of notion of treatment models. And there was really nothing that I could find in Australia that that went that far, which is why I ended up going to the UK and studying with the National Centre. Yep. So after I did their training, I came back to Australia and started working in Coffs Harbour, where I'm based. So by this time, I was doing half of my time in bariatrics and half in eating disorders. And the stories I found were all very similar from patients. And they were you know, you're the eighth person I've seen, you're the 12th person I've seen. And the frustration at not being able to see anyone who really understood eating disorders, Mm -hmm. they'd been referred to psychologists, to dietitians, for instance, none of which really had that kind of unique understanding of all the facets of an eating disorder and how they come together. That's really important too, because, you know, if we were just to go by the DSM, there's some very clear cut sort of particular symptoms and and behaviours for eating disorders as such. But I think what you are talking about too, is that eating disorders aren't just anorexia, bulimia and binge eating, you know, on the spectrum of eating disorders, disordered eating, people are going to be coming in with weight concerns where they're on this sort of scale somewhere along there. Absolutely. And I don't know about you, but I find people very rarely fit into those neat sort of diagnostic. Exactly. And I guess I want to say that because if there's people listening who maybe just think I emotionally eat or someone who's been on a diet for like 40 years, um, (laughs) this is all kind of disordered eating at, at some level. So it's important you raise that. So. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something, as I say, which was a really common story. And it made me 
really realised that we needed in Australia, firstly, that sort of more comprehensive training. And also we needed some sort of database where once people had completed that training, that people who believed that they might have an eating disorder could link up with those health professionals so that they wouldn't have to go on this kind of fruitless journey of seeing 10 people before they found someone who actually Mm. had those skills. So it was bringing together both areas, really. It was the network and it was the training. And that's what we've been doing for the last six years now. Wow, that long already. So what we'll do at the end, I'll make sure that you share how people can find you and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So the reason I reached out to you is because after I'd done the training, I wrote to you a few weeks ago and I I couldn't find the article anywhere, but uh, you kindly pointed me to LinkedIn, which is where you posted it. You wrote an article about fitness trackers. Yes. And so wearable fitness trackers, are ex- they're basically expected to generate $50 billion in revenue by 2023. And according to uh, PNS market research, there's an increasing number of studies suggesting that they are equated with higher levels of body dissatisfaction and disordered eating. So today I would love for us to talk about that article that you wrote. And the name of it was, Is Fitbit Just Another Way to Judge Yourself Too Harshly? And you also wrote about a term, trachorexia. So can you share with our audience what you mean by this term? It is a made-up term, and I want to kind of clarify by saying I hate the idea of adding rexia onto anything and kind of making up these new disorders and things Mm. that we should worry about. But I was really trying to think of a way to describe something that I had seen more and more come up in the clients that I'd seen, Mm. where they were very, very attached to their tracking device, Mm. became very anxious if they didn't have it on and were really kind of overanalyzing the numbers and they had a a real kind of almost an emotional attachment to the tracking device Mm. and it made me just kind of ponder where we were going with that. Yeah when we think about it we know that uh, weighing calorie counting measuring that these have been tools that chronic dieters and people with disordered eating have really been a slave to for many, many years. I mean, you know, I remember back in the 80s carrying around my little calorie counter in my handbag to track my calories. And then obviously the more you do it, the more that sort of internal tracker is sort of in in your own mind. But, um, you know, so we've been using these for years, but we're sort of focusing on Fitbit, but we're really talking about all of these wearable trackers. It's unfair to single out one. (laughs) It is, it is. So we take that back. Um, (laughs) So why is this in general problematic? So I guess let's focus first of all on the counting and the tracking. And that can be, you know, weighing, calorie counting, carb counting, tracking. Why is it problematic? Well, I think fundamentally we have to ask ourselves, what are those figures telling us? What are we seeking in those figures? So, for instance, if I've walked 10,000 steps today, Mm. what does that actually mean? It's actually meaningless unless we attach a meaning to it. And I think it's in the meaning that the problems start to occur. Yep. So people start to really interpret, you know, if I've walked uh, 10,000 steps, that means I've done well or I'm good enough or I'm succeeding or it's a way of measuring yourself against other people, for instance. So I think it's the meaning that we place on it, on those sort of figures. Yeah. And so for people listening, what are some of the meanings? So you've touched on it a little bit there. So you know, it's around self-worth. So if I walk 10,000 steps, I'm uh, good. Yeah. Yeah. If I don't walk 10,000 steps, I'm... Therefore bad. Therefore bad. (laughs) That's what people are are reading into this, this idea of tracking or, you know, monitoring and measuring every area of their life. Because of course, it's not just steps that these things track. It's calories. It's the amount of sleep that you get. It's sort of judging you on all these different levels. And for people who don't have a disordered eating sort of history, it's probably not as potentially is harming but we know that the majority of look in 20 years of working with women in therapy even people who don't come for eating disorders pretty much still have food weight and body image concerns so so for the majority of people there is that sort of tendency where it can become unhealthy so what other ways is it you know 
any of this sort of counting, what, what, what other ways is it unhelpful, I guess? Well, as I say, it, it puts too much of an emphasis, I think, on the figures. And yep. it, it means that we judge ourselves by these kind of external devices, I suppose, mm. rather mm. than checking in on ourselves and paying attention to our own feelings, physical feelings and emotional feelings. Mm. We're relying on this machine to track those for us. Yeah. And for some people that can get quite obsessive. Yeah. So for people listening, what does obsessive look like? What would you expect, you know, if you were in someone's mind who was obsessing over the numbers or carbs or the the, the scales or the tracker, what might that look like? Well, obviously it's repetitive behaviours. If they're going to these things all the time, which is part of the problem with the fitness tracker is that it's on you all the time. Mm. Um, And also a lot of them have an app to go with them. So it's not just the wearing of the fitness tracker and what information that gives you. You can go into a whole load of statistics via the app as well. So you really can start to micromanage these aspects of your life. And it tracks them against, you know, day against day. So you can have graphs, for instance, printing out, Mm. are you doing better today than yesterday? And a lot of people describe this as motivational, but there's a fine line between being motivated and becoming obsessed about those figures. Mm. And I would say obsession starts when you have some level of anxiety if you can't access those figures. Yeah. And look, I'm just thinking back to when I was in the height of my eating disorder and, you know, it was we didn't have trackers back then that was too long ago but um you know thinking <laughs> Imagine if you had though <laughs> well that's what i'm thinking because i remember pulling the scales out you know every time i walk past the bathroom p- pulling the scales out but once you leave home and you are you know at work or out somewhere and in those days I was out clubbing <laughs> yeah. you, you don't have that access to the scale while you're doing that so at least there's some kind of um, reprieve from it you're not sort of attached to it all day yeah absolutely as you said back in the day when in my dieting days I remember Weight Watchers would give you a little book that you had to fill out every day and count all the points that oh, you yes. were using up it's, it's a very similar kind of it um, is tracking device and that did stay with you all day I mean admittedly you could leave it behind you did have a choice but it was kind of making you develop this sort of Pavlovian response that everything must be accounted for must be tracked must be paid for in some way so you know that's where it heads and when we're talking about nourishment and enjoying food and even just you know going for a nice doesn't even have to be a mindful walk but just a a nice walk along manly beachfront for example it sort of adds a whole new level of uh, having to earn food and pleasure in a way yeah absolutely everything must be paid for and it's something that I know in the work that you do and the work that I do, that's something we really try and disconnect to the idea that one thing must pay for another thing, that they've yeah. got to be kind of negotiated against each other. Yeah. And also I'm thinking too, you mentioned about being anxious, just when we are using those kind of things to count. So whether it is getting on the scales all day or counting carbs or, or calorie counting, whatever it is, the tracker, the what happens is, is that when it's almost like it's done to relieve some kind of anxiety, but the impact that it has is my experience is it sends people either into feeling more anxious or depressed and very low mood or temporarily sort of upbeat for a period of time, but that doesn't really last. What's your experience of that? Absolutely. I agree with you. Most of the clients I see one of the most prevalent things that comes through is stress and anxiety. I think in our modern world, stress and anxiety are are one of those, they're those issues that we've kind of learned to live with. But I think that adding technology in there and tracking and micromanaging all these little areas, I'd absolutely agree with you. It adds to that rather than distracts from it. And I think one of the problems with the fitness tracker that I read in in your article is the concerns around wearing it 24-7. You've already raised that around it. It sort of manages sleep and it's there all the time. There's, There's no relief from it. Absolutely. And there's that reinforcing message that you're not good enough if you're not reaching certain targets there was something well, some else. Of them actually, sorry I was going to say some of them actually have little faces apparently where you know they will either smile at you or they will get 
sad or angry at you if you're not mm. doing well enough. So not only is it, is it with you 24-7, but it's also actually judging you. You know, we kind of say we're feeling judged. This thing actually does judge you. It will tell you off if you're not doing well enough. You know, you're reminding me, my daughter, when she was, I won't say which year because I don't want to dob the teacher in. But, uh, <laughs> they have this technique at school, which to me is so 1950s, where they give the kids a sad face you know, for their behaviour and you're reminding me of that. But, but yeah. when, when uh, my daughter came home and told me about it, I had to send an email to the teacher and said, I'd, you know, I'd prefer that you didn't uh, use this technique with my daughter, please. I, I find it really shaming and it's kind of like, you know, these people who are getting these angry faces sent to them. I just felt so much compassion for them when you said that because it's it's like this machine on their arm telling them how they are. Exactly. Is that they, it's almost like it's hijacking your ability to decide your own mood. It's telling you that mm. what you should be thinking and what you should be feeling. Oh, that's terrible when we talk about it like that. And, uh, and, and something else that you wrote, you know, it doesn't focus on someone's psychological well-being. So what, no. do, you, what do you mean by that? This is tied up in, in something which might take us a little bit off track, which is health. Mm. And so often there's this sort of focus on health and it ties into our physical being. Mm. And quite often and in the work that you and I do, I see people who are willing to completely give away their mental health in pursuit of their physical health or what yeah. they perceive as being their physical health. And I think it's important to realise that health has many, many different forms. Mm. Our physical health, our spiritual health, psychological health, our financial health, you know, there, there's so many elements to our overall health, yet we seem to just focus on our physical health, being fit and being thin as being the epitome of being healthy. And I really think we need to widen that domain and actually look at it more holistically. Absolutely. And, and even you know, places do talk about holistic health. In my experience, it very rarely is. It's They sort of touch on sort of biological, psychological and social or something like that. But rarely, you know, I'm going to be talking about this in another episode, rarely does spirituality sort of get a look in, in with that and really developing a full sense of sort of self and especially at the doctors, you know, always coming back to it's always about weight. It's always about physical health. Yes, absolutely. And I think mental health in, in a lot of ways, because um, our body changes over the years, obviously, mm. we age. And in that aging process, we lose a lot of our physical abilities. And so in some ways, our mental health, our psychological health is, is arguably more important. Oh, because that's something which, you know, has a, an ongoing value long after our bodies have given up on us or we've given up on them. But, you know, our, our mental well-being is, I think, a lot more important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, one of the problems with that, when we go through the GP for that, it's uh, it's it's a very limited model of health, you know, the, the medical model. And, and often people with mental health concerns, I mean, the first step is psychopharmacology where, and, and I'm, yes. not, I'm not anti that, but there's no encouragement to go and, you know, for example, do sort of deep exploratory, sort of deep soul work. It's it's more like, let's find a, a, a sort of quick fix for this this anxiety problem or let's medicate yeah. it and so, so it's not actually that holistic at all yeah or any work at all I, I had um, a patient uh, about two months ago who had been on antidepressants for 20 years oh and gosh. I began to encourage her to talk about some of the therapists that she had met on that journey mm. uh, and she hadn't actually engaged with anybody Mm. nobody whatsoever she had just been on antidepressants for 20 years so as you say that sort of quick fix well, mm. clearly 20 years isn't quick but um but rather than kind of looking at at the cause it's just treating the symptoms yeah absolutely that's very very limiting isn't it because it's absolutely it's, yeah it also plus a lot of the treatments place a sort of glass ceiling on on people's recovery too i find but uh, i mean that's the topic for a whole other absolutely <laughs> ten, yeah, sorry, other ten, no 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 <laughs> that doesn't matter it's, it's you know another 10 episodes of um <laughs> stuff to talk about there but one of the other really important things too is that 
especially for people who have had chronic dieting and eating issues over the years, exercise has always been like this dangling sort of carrot to you do it to actually make yourself look better or to lose Mm -hmm. weight. And what's the impact that tracking can have on even just enjoying exercise, I guess? Well, I suppose, I mean, when you said about the emphasis on exercise, the words that came into my mind were words from probably the 80s, feel the burn. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. This idea that unless it it hurt, unless you pushed yourself and you were sweaty and Mm. exhausted, it didn't count. So I suppose that we're being led into more sort of extreme Um, exercise approaches just like we are with extreme dieting Mm. and we're losing the idea that as you say of finding the joy finding something you actually enjoy engaging in Mm. it doesn't have to get you out of breath you don't have to clock up a certain number because in the longer term and, and we do know this with the research bears this out you know in the longer term if you enjoy walking your dog every day and you can Mm. do that for the rest of your life that's a far better way to exercise your body than going hard at the gym for a month and then quitting yeah so but kind of long-term exercise is much much better for us Mm. you know so uh, this is something I always do with people actually that have bariatric surgery and they have mm. the surgery and they say I'm going to join a gym and I'm going to go for an hour a day and I just say (laughs) if you love the gym go if you've been to the gym before and you've discovered it it's it's your thing and you really enjoy it absolutely but if you don't enjoy the gym and you don't want to go, then please don't because it it feels like a duty. It feels like some sort of punishment and some sort of price that you have to pay. And, and that's not enjoyable for us. Again, on a holistic level, why would we spend time mm. doing something that feels like a punishment? Why yeah. would we treat ourselves that way? Absolutely. And I do love the gym. My gym has a, has a pool and it has, you know, like everything. So it's, I do enjoy going there. But one of the things that pisses me off about there, there's a big sign on the wall that says excessive exercise makes you more attractive. Wow, really? <laughs> I'm surprised you haven't ripped that one down, Jody. Uh, it's actually painted on the wall. I have every oh, time. I, you know, every time I go, I put a uh, you know like the complaint form in. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Karen in that moment. <laughs> Absolutely, so you should be. <laughs> but um, you know, and look, I remember back to my again my eating disorder days, and when mine really, really cranked up was in my first relationship when I was living in New Zealand, and. I was a gym junkie, basically. Going to the gym, there was no one, you could clearly see that I was very, very underweight and that I was there doing two, three, four classes. And, you know, often they can be quite unhealthy places too for people, I think, when when there's no yeah. kind of, you know, no one ever checked in and said, hey, are you okay? Yeah, exactly. There's no duty of care, really, yeah. as far as, certainly as far as eating disorders are concerned. So obviously people, when they're stuck in their disordered eating mind, very, very strong sense of Carolyn Costin calls it the eating disorder self. So when someone's stuck in that place, they might be listening today thinking, yeah, but you know, what's wrong with staying motivated? What's wrong with, with doing all that? How are they going to know when what they're doing is reaching, not even reaching, but is starting to become unhealthy when it comes to numbers, counting, tracking, well, I, I think certainly with these trackers, it's it goes back to that idea that if you can leave your tracker behind without anxiety, then it's probably okay. Okay, but if that's you a good can't point. do that and you've become reliant on that tracker, mm. then you've got to ask yourself some some tough questions. I think. Mm. And if someone is getting anxious when they leave it behind, what would you say to them? What do they do in that moment, I guess? Well, I mean, I, th- I think it's quite simple. It's basically, and pun intended, to, to get 10,000 steps away from the tracker. <laughs> I would say that. <laughs> Count every one of them. Yeah. It's a very simple matter of, of leaving it behind and going cold turkey. I don't think there's a way of sort of weaning yourself off these things. I was actually told by one of my patients a while back, which I, was, I thought was so interesting, that she said if she's not wearing her tracker, it's not worth doing anything. <sighs> And 
that really resonated with me. This idea that if it's not being tracked, it didn't happen. It's a bit like the old thing, if, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it. She was basically saying, that, yeah, if it's not being tracked, it doesn't count. So there's no point in expending energy if I'm not wearing my tracker. And that's a really good example of how unintuitive, I suppose, yeah. that sort of behaviour is. Yeah. And I guess I want to sort of sidestep a little bit. So one of, when we look at in in the media and we think about the obesity, supposed obesity epidemic, they cite that rising obesity rates in children in 2018, Fitbit released a tracker for children who are for eight years and older. So that same year, my daughter, who was eight at the time, came home from school and asked for a Fitbit because several other kids had started to wear them to school. Alongside this, some of the girls had started to restrict certain foods and they were asking, do I look fat? So I have a couple of questions about children using trackers and I already know what you're going to say about this. But for the, for the, <laughs> Well, I'm for interested the... in your response as well of how you dealt with that when she asked. Yeah, well, we had a a very lengthy conversation around it. But look, I think it's within the context of things. At the time when that happened, my little one had just started school and was uh, struggling. And there was, he was getting a lot of, I guess, negative attention for some very colourful behaviour. And so Mm -hmm. what I didn't want to do with my daughter is to get too hung up on this stuff in case there was kind of this way of her realizing that she could get mum's freak mum's an eating disorder therapist and she's freaking out about me asking about whether I'm fat or not yeah I have that too (laughs) so what I actually did was we had one conversation about it and we talked around feeling full versus being fat and what your body feels like when you eat and we also talked about exactly the things you were talking about before around how we don't need external things to tell us how our body feels. So we did all that piece of work. And then I paid lots and lots of attention doing something else. And we, we just happened to be going away that year on an overseas holiday. So I actually, you know, where I could see that she was actually needing a lot of attention at that stage, really focusing on something healthy. And, you know, I bought her a Singapore guidebook. So we sat and read that together every day and planned our holiday and stuff like that. Fantastic. So Parents are sending their kids to school in them. They're given as prizes for kids. Right. That's a bit ironic, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the average age that girls start to diet actually is eight. So why do you think trackers are particularly problematic for children really starting at around this age? Well, kids are very different at eight, different Mm -hmm. to each other, different levels of development and, and things like that. And it gives them this sort of, literally a fast track into what you and I know are Mm. all the problems later on of of the whole kind of diet culture. And it brings that in and it normalizes it because if everybody at school is judging their weight and judging their food and counting their steps, it just normalizes that behavior and nobody stops to actually question it. And if, if that's normal to you at eight, it's going to be normalised for the rest of your life. When are you ever going to question that? Mm. It's, it's the other really... thing that's worth a mention about the trackers as well, as I say, yep. a lot of them have an app attached to them. Mm. I know with the children's trackers, some of these apps actually have areas of the app that the parents can access where it goes into far more detail. And some of those apps compare, for instance, your child to other children of the oh same age. Oh, my God, I did not know that. Yeah. So <gasps> you as a parent can go in and go, oh, how is my child measuring up against? Oh, my God. Well, exactly. You can tell where that's going to go. You know, even if your child is trying hard and is doing the best they can, you could still look at that. And some parents would judge that and go, well, they're not doing well enough. And mm. as I say, we could go off track on that one as well. But it's, yeah, I, I think Well, it's, it's really setting up that comparison, isn't it, in, in terms of, um, I mean, parents do that all the time anyway, I find. <laughs> but, um, yeah, You absolutely. know, with grades and whatever else. But, yeah. you know, I mean, we're obviously talking about eating issues. So it's, it's just so problematic for children if their body is being compared to anyone else's because... Especially is, at the age of eight when uh, kids' bodies are so different. Exactly. And, you know, some are just starting puberty, some, some are nowhere near that yet. So there's a whole range of reasons why, yeah. you know, genetics. I, I remember seeing a family member recently and a photo and thinking she just had the gale sort of body. <laughs> and I, 
the minute I saw her, I thought, oh my goodness, all those years of trying to change my body. And that's just how it was. It's like the gay old body shape. Yeah. (laughs) So comparing to other people is just completely pointless. And starting that so young as well. Mm. And it also, I mentioned that kind of Pavlovian response before, Mm. but again, when we do this at the age of eight, where we kind of condition that child to seek that constant sort of praise and reassurance from this piece of technology. You know, we're kind of conditioning them to constantly seek the answer to that question, am I good enough? Am I doing well enough? Am I okay? Which, you know, eight is very young. Well, also what I'm thinking when you say that too, because, you know, I work from a trauma perspective with eating disorders and in 20 years of working with people, every client has had early childhood emotional neglect. I'm thinking Mm -hmm. too how this sets up a, am I good enough? You know, if if parents are setting the goals or whatever, it's another way to kind of creep into that sort of aspect too, where the child doesn't at some level is not learning that naturally in some way. Yeah, they're not seeking those internal sort of cues that we would encourage our kids you know well, what we often say to our kids you know well, what do you think about this and exactly we encourage them to have their own opinions and sort of make their own choices and this is kind of really going against that and so there's going to be people listening who uh you know but what about the obesity epidemic what about childhood obesity rates we've got to get onto this we've got to uh, be counting out i mean look there are kids already in, in my daughter's now 11. So there's kids already restricting carbs, they're counting carbs, they're, they're already doing all this stuff because there's parents who, who, who are like, yeah, but what about the, I don't want my kid to get fat. So first mm. of all, it's, we know it's not a crime to be fat. We also Absolutely. know that people in different body sizes and shapes are, can be healthy or unhealthy, you know, either way. What do you say to those parents who are saying, yeah, but we need to keep on with this stuff? You know, we don't want to fuel the obesity epidemic. Well, I would argue this isn't the way to fix it, certainly with the tracking device. Mm. It's a really complex issue, as you know, and it's something that you you can't sort of really answer in a in a sentence. But by tracking a child's fitness and encouraging them to micromanage their relationship with food... Mm is not going to fix this perceived obesity yep. crisis if there is one. Yeah. I think it's far better as you say there's nothing inherently wrong with carrying extra weight mm. and I think we need to work more on acceptance of those sort of diversities rather mm. than trying to channel everyone down the same pathway of you know having to be a certain shape and size and and fitness level. We're just going about it the wrong way. <laughs> well, also, I mean, we've been going about it in lots of wrong ways for a very long time and it's actually just getting worse. So there's something fundamentally wrong with what we're doing, you know, yeah. with, with particularly around, you know, if we think about, and someone else mentioned this in another podcast, you know, the Michelle Obama and even the Jamie Oliver sort of obesity epidemic sort of programs that they've been sort of promoting it's actually still getting worse, not better. So there's something not quite working there, isn't there? (laughs) Oh, for the last, what, 40 years, everyone's been getting bigger. And again, this is something that we have to recognise as fact, is that if you go back in history, Mm. we as a population have all got bigger. If you tried to go to a, a vintage shop and buy a 50s, 1950s item of clothing, you would be very shocked at how small it was mm. because we have all got bigger in that time. But um, in our kind of, I suppose, Western ideology where food is abundant, the idea is that we kind of favour, if you like, or look at people who manage to go against that trend and be very thin Mm. against the fact that there's lots of food availability we look at that as being desirable somehow yeah so yeah as I say we're going off on another tangent we could talk about for days but it's (laughs) just something that we have got wrong and everything that we have tried to do when I say we I kind of mean government responses as far as making people smaller has clearly not worked because even in the last 40 years, we've all, as a society, as a population, got much bigger. That's right. Personally, I know from being a chronic dieter, the more I am told to diet, the more that I dieted, the fatter I got. 
Absolutely. And, and, and I say that to all my patients. The best yep. way to get fat is to go on a diet. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the whole messaging there is, is, is wrong. So um, in the blog, you ended with, I love this statement, if something strapped to your wrist is saying you're not good enough, fit enough or thin enough, then perhaps you need to say, sorry, it's over. It's not me. It's you. So I love this. So moving forward, as and as we begin to sort of round up, what's the alternative? And I guess what advice do you have for people who have been using a Fitbit, realizing after listening to our interview today that they may have a problem with it, uh, or, or it could be carb counting, calorie counting, measuring oneself, whatever it is that they're using to count whatever. Where do they start, I guess? I think if you can walk away, do. Yep. If you try to walk away and you realize it causes you a lot of anxiety, then that is something that you're going to need help to work through. Yep. Um, there is lots of help. People like you and I, Jodie. Yep. Um, people out there that can help you find a much better holistic way of looking after yourself. Mm. Um where judgment doesn't play a part in it, mm. where obsessing and counting doesn't play a part in it, but actually sort of reaching inside a bit more and doing things that are far more holistic and intuitive. I know those are words that are thrown around a lot, and in some cases they lose their meaning because they're not um, used in the correct way. But I think we really are um, <clears throat> losing sight of of our own internal cues and the way that we negotiate our relationship with food and our relationship with our body. Yeah, it's interesting because I someone posted in an eating disorder group this week, The uh, I can't remember her name, Jillian, Jillian, someone from the American Biggest Loser, pulling apart okay. intuitive eating and saying basically what a load of crap it was, but also how using it to people using it to lose weight. <laughs> like that's not really the purpose. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's not. And exactly. People go, oh, I'll do that if it will lose me weight. And they, they really are missing the point. Yeah. So it's really coming back to be listening to one's body to become, to listen to that intuition around uh, and something you talk about. I can't say this word very well. Satiate. Oh, under I, and say satiation. The way. I say satiety. <laughs> oh, satiety. And- I say I always get picked up on this on my courses because I I I think it's the English way I say okay. satiety rather oh, maybe, than maybe maybe I'm using the American version I don't know <laughs> but um even you know hunger and satiety <laughs> what do people need to look out for with that I guess what are they what's you know if, if they are ruled by these external rules yeah what are, what well some are... some people really have to learn this which mm. sounds silly because we've been we've been being empty and being full from the day we were born. Mm. Um, But interestingly enough, when you actually speak to people about those feelings, quite often they just don't know. They, Mm. they can't identify those feelings. So again, sometimes we literally have to go back to square one and, and teach people where to look for these things in their bodies and Mm. what they might feel like. Cause again, they're different for a lot of people. So, you know, you're, Um, response might be completely different to mine so it's not learning a standard response it's kind of tapping into your own reactions and how you feel and we're just not taught to do that yeah exactly and especially with if we think about children being raised in in families where there's a lot of food rules and paranoia about food paranoia about fat it starts that that sort of not listening to oneself starts so young yeah I've actually got I don't hope this it's okay to put in here but I've Mm. actually copied from something that I read online a couple of quotes regarding fitness trackers and children basically the article was sharing the good and bad Mm -hmm. about this and just see what you feel about it, because I think the good quote I would interpret in a completely different way. But anyway, <laughs> okay. here's the good one. Okay. And what it says is, Brisbane mum of two, Bridget, says she has fitness trackers for her children aged eight and 11, and she's noticed a big improvement in their activity. So this is quoting Bridget. Mm. She says, there's a lot of competition in our house now, she laughs. Ha ha ha. If one hits 10,000 steps, the other one will want to reach 11,000 steps. They don't take it too seriously, but I have noticed them stepping away from their iPads in order to run laps (laughs) of the yard to bump up their numbers before dinner. So I'm pretty happy with that. 
So that was the positive or so-called positive one, but I'm sure you feel the same as me and I read into that lots of problems. Yeah, I'm wishing we had the uh, camera on. You'd see me shaking. My head. <laughs> like, like, what the fuck? <laughs> me doing my Bridget impression. Yeah. But, um, again, to think that inspiring a competitiveness mm. between your children mm. is a good thing, I would question. Mm. But anyway, here's the one that says that she decided to take her tracker back from her daughter. So it says, Melbourne mum of one Lucy mm. says she took her nine-year-old daughter's tracker back. Frankie became obsessed, she says. And when she didn't reach the goal she set for herself, she'd feel bad and the negative self-talk mm. would start. The day that I heard her say that she was going to get fat because she didn't exercise enough was the day I decided to call time on the fitness tracker. Well done, Mum. So I just thought those were two really interesting Mm. quotes from different parents. One that believes that the fitness tracker is actually doing some good Mm. and the other one that believes it isn't. Mm. I actually really love this second one. And what that tells me is that the, the mother is actually attuned to what's really going on, you know, maybe not originally by buying the thing in the first place, but the fact that she's picked up on, you know, the impact that this is having and actually acting on that. Because one of the problems you have, as you know, when you've got kids at school is that oh, but everyone else has got one. And, you know, unfortunately for my kids, I'm a therapist. I see the worst in what happens and can happen to people. So I'm probably a little bit more strict with iPads and with things like this. And, but it is hard for parents to say no. Absolutely. But everyone else has got one and they're all talking to each other because the other problem with these kids fitness ones is that often they are also phones and they're actually got their texting on their wrist 24-7 also, which is another 10 episodes. (laughs) (laughs) We're not being able to step away from social media and all that kind of stuff. So... You've got to ask later along the line, if they start with a kid's fitness tracker, which has limited functions... Mm. Are they going to want more and more and more? Yeah. Are they going to want to track more and more things? Is that Mm. not going to be enough in the future? Mm. So I think we've got to ask where it's heading. Mm. Absolutely. And as someone sort of is is listening and they're they're stuck, you know, they're obviously thinking, okay, I'm a bit obsessive with this or I'm super obsessive with this. What about in terms of moving into joyful sort of exercise or people will be saying, yeah, but it's good to get that 10,000 steps sweat on. And it's how do they move into a healthier relationship with, with movement, I guess? Well, the way I work with the people that I see is Mm. always to start from the point of enjoyment and then see where the exercise crosses that line rather than try to aim for exercise. So we talk about what they enjoy doing. Do they enjoy the beach? So is there anything that we can incorporate into them paying a visit to the beach, for example? Yeah, perfect. Um, I also deal with people that, uh, because I, I do bariatrics, I deal with people sometimes that either it's too painful for them to exercise or they've got a lot of physical limitations. Mm-hmm. So then we often start with things like music. And literally just, even if it's just moving your head or the top of your body around, if you're really that limited, but it's finding that enjoyment in movement, even if it's very limited physical movement, and then they progress into, you know, kind of moving around in in a chair and getting up and dancing all Mm. in the privacy of their home. Because we've got to remember as well that some people don't receive a, um, a pleasant response sometimes when they try and exercise in public yeah so for a lot of people that feel that they're quite inhibited and don't want to go out and move that's fine there's plenty Mm. of stuff you can do at home so always tap into the enjoyment and then add the exercise (laughs) and this is so important you know a lot of people feel incredible shame about their bodies especially people in larger bodies so when you talk about starting at home you know, one of my 20s and 30s living in London, I was part of the rave scene. So I love house music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the things that I started to do, which has been fantastic because it's more and more online because of coronavirus, is doing like a Nia dance class. And Gabrielle 
uh, Roth Five Rhythms Dance Class on YouTube, just down in the back rumpus room. And yeah. it's fantastic because especially, you know, some people have got kids and they can't get out and who wants to go at like five o'clock in the morning somewhere? Well, some people do, that's fine if you do, but that's not me. So it's great that people can actually just even find resources like that online these days. So yeah. But as I say, aim for the joy and yep. the movement will come. Yeah, that's I love that. That's such a great response. So if anyone out there is struggling and I guess if people are struggling with disordered eating, so there's, there'll be two people listening. There'll, there'll be people suffering and there'll be probably some therapists listening. So actually maybe before we do that, can you tell um, any therapists listening a little bit about your training? I think that's a good place to start. Well, we offer three kind of main training areas. Mm -hmm. One is eating disorders. The next one is weight concerns, which Mm -hmm. promotes an anti-diet response for people with weight concerns. And the last one is called practical skills, which is a bit of an extension course of the previous two. So those three courses, if the world was normal, we would be running them in capital cities all over Australia and in New Zealand. This year, however, they've gone online. So we've transferred the whole thing online for 2020. But hopefully next year, we will be back in the capital cities offering those trainings. Perfect. And also the therapist can then also go on your website. There's a database there of therapists. So once they've done the training, they get to go on your website, which is, you know, I'm they do indeed. very appreciative of. We work to promote them. And we also have um, sort of peer support through a Facebook group. So you can get together with other people that have done the training from all different health professions and people help each other out. Yeah, I love your group because I'll be honest, I'm a bit out there with my eating disorder treatment. I, I come from a psycho-spiritual approach and sometimes uh, there's a bit of judgment if you're not sort of medical model aligned, I think. But I yeah. find in your group that it's because you've got dietitians in there as well and you've got, uh, I think you might even have some G, have you got some GPs and like there's different people. We have, yeah, we've got psychiatrists there. and social workers and counsellors and therapists. It's such a wide variety of people mm. that judgment is very much judgment against each other and sort of intellectual and academic snobbery, as I call it, Mm, mm. is very much discouraged. Yeah. So for someone listening today who is struggling, how do they find you? You've just said you've got a database of uh, therapists on your website. How do they find that? It's at acfed.com.au. So it's the Australian Centre for Eating Disorders. That's what ACFED stands for. And there's a whole list of people there that are trained and that are willing and able to help you. Mm. So I would encourage them to log on, find someone in their area that they like the look of. And also, if they're rural or regional, there's plenty of people on there that will do Zoom or Skype sessions and things like that so don't feel that you are isolated and can't make contact with anybody exactly and I I guess what I want to say too is if you're listening today and you don't think you have an eating disorder per se but you've been struggling with some of the other issues you know chronic dieting years and years of yo-yo dieting then some of these all of the practitioners are trained to work with that as well yes they are Good. Okay, Kyla, it's so nice to talk to you. I'm sure people are really going to have a lot to think about after today and hearing your wisdom in this field. Is there anything else that you want to share before we end? Hopefully we've covered it pretty well. And as you say, if this just gives people food for thought, just reconsider, review your own relationship perhaps with your fitness tracker if you have got one, then I think we've we've done a good job, hopefully. Yeah, perfect. Good place to end. All right. This is episode nine. For the show notes, go to the soulcenter.online forward slash soul sessions nine trackorexia. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Love this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind and soul, get Jody's free 65-page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.